I'm Megan. I'm Tegan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tegan. Hey, Megan. We're back today for season three, episode 22, Women's Appreciation. And I get the sense you're pretty excited about this one. I'm very, very excited. I just, there's so much to talk about. There really is. There really is. This is a big, a big episode. Yeah, I I just, I'm not even sure where to begin because there's so many things that are funny and then so many things that reveal interesting stuff about characters. This episode brings back the cringe for me. The level of cringe is high and <laughs> it's reminding me of why, of the premise of our podcast in the first place that uh, I'm, I find this kind of humor like deeply unsettling and you find it joyous. Uh, and then there's also thematic, political, social topics for us to discuss, such as appreciating women and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is our kind of episode, I think. Totally. Well, we can get into it because I think we're going to have a lot to talk about, but first of all, do you have any revisions and regrets? Yeah, let's walk over to accounting, and here we are, and I just want to apologize to everybody out there who was screaming at your podcast machines that I didn't make any bun puns, oops, there it is, <laughs> any puns <laughs> about bears, because uh, we were having a whole debate about, you know, um, yeah, like, what was the, what's the best bear? It was best, yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, all our queer listeners were screaming about, you know, bears, you know, which is like a, a larger, hairier gay dude. And I, I just feel, I really feel like I, I dropped the ball on that. And I apologize to, to the audience members who were upset about that. Here's a question for you. Are you a big pun person? You know, I, I'm not. And, uh, but I have a lot of friends who are really into puns and word games and I find them charming. Yeah. Those people, not puns, just to be clear. <laughs> um, I used to have a professor when I was an undergraduate who, when the class would be silent, she would just start making puns to get us to make her stop and to get us to talk. And she was really, really good at it, like a master of pun making. And I am definitely not, so I don't even venture into that into that zone. But some people, some people really have got it and some people don't. Can you give an example of one that she would give? I cannot. Okay. I have, this has been a lot of years now and I have no recollection of specifics, just that she could fire them off until we would speak. Um, and maybe I should remember that when my students are being silent, not that I can come up with puns, but that like, you know, I didn't hate the class. I really liked the class. And sometimes I just didn't have things to say because, you know, sometimes when you get silence, it's like, what am I, what am I doing wrong? I'm like missing something real big here, but you know, sometimes people just don't have anything to say. It is brutal when it's silent and you're just feel like you're bombing, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what about you? Any, any regrets on your behalf? Well, I very quickly after releasing the podcast did receive a couple of responses. First of all, friend of the pod, Nick, so in the last episode, I went a little too far out on, limb, on a limb with a sports analogy and a comparison to Michael Jordan. 
And I think my comparison remained pretty strong, but I was fuzzy on some details. So this was the response. Your MJ analogy is incorrect. He left basketball in 1993 after the three championships, tried his hand at baseball for a year and a half or two years, and then returned to basketball for his second three-peat. So I didn't try to make any claims about dates, but I did make it sound like he only had one three-peat, but he had two, which was a big deal. Then 1998, I believe, he retired the second time and then came back and was not great, but his not great was better than a lot of people's best. Mm. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I definitely am going to agree that his not great is better than almost absolutely everybody in the world's best. Um, so some, you know, I needed to refine the precision on my analogy here, but I would argue it wasn't entirely incorrect. Um, let me know. <laughs> I need Nick to write in and uh, just answer some questions for me, such as why did Michael Jordan leave basketball to play baseball? Like <laughs> that, that seems like an odd choice and to do it for a year and a half, like, and was he good? Was he, <laughs> was it like a stunt just to get like people to baseball or something? Or was he, is he like, if you're good at one, like, can, I think baseball was struggling. Yeah, um, yeah, fair enough. I don't know. I was like, maybe we need to get people back. And I just watched a league of their own. And that's sort of the premise. Is it like all the men are off at war and we need to like bring up morale. So it's like, anyway, but not the movie, the the TV show, which is super great. If anybody's. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, but, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should do an annex episode where we do give our full analysis of Michael Jordan's career. We could do a little bit of research and then um, it would just be infuriating, I think, to any listeners who actually know about this stuff, but it would be fun. Wait, but do you know anything about why he played baseball? No. Um, Doesn't that seem insane? Well, I think that my controversial opinion might be ego. Oh, okay. Okay. Is he not like a good dude? Is he kind of a... Oh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I'd make an evaluation on like good or bad dude, but I think there's just a level of high level of confidence there. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. I'm the best in the world at at basketball, I think I can go do baseball too. I don't feel like he was super good. But again, I say that as a person with no knowledge and no right to say anything. So I feel like I'm venturing into some dangerous territory. Here. That's why I I want to get, I'm trying to push you there. I'm trying to nudge you <laughs> off the cliff a little well, that, bit. But also, because, go ahead, sorry. That's why I want to do, I, I, I would be up for doing a sports-based um, annex where I feel like I can just really lean into my unfounded opinions. I usually think of myself as a masochist, but in this one moment, I think I'm a bit of a sadist because I like this idea of Nick like driving along or running or something and just like furious <laughs> that at like at our lack of knowledge, because I'm sure he has the answers, but mm -hmm. he can't like he can't, you know, reverse time and change what we're saying anyway. So uh, not that I want to torture you, Nick. We love you. We're grateful for your listenership and yeah. your fidelity. Uh, but at the same time, I have questions here. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I need to know about the baseball thing. And I'm also curious about like, yeah, just, is this, is this a thing that other sports people do? They leave one sport to go to another sport. Like I get leaving to go to be an announcer and I get leaving to be like a, an actor, 
but to like, and does anybody ever go like from basketball to hockey or something? I don't know. I'm just curious. Anyway, that's a great question. A lot of good sports journalism questions coming out here. That's a generous response. <laughs> um, is Steve Carell in any sports movies? Ooh, that's a good like, question. He should be in a hockey movie, right? Yeah, that's a great. Well, you're just saying that because Michael Scott can skate, right? Yeah, but so can Steve Carell. Wait, really? It was actually him skating in the episode. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, so he's a strong he's a strong skater. Uh, he was in a sports movie, but yikes, what sports movie? It was Foxcatcher, a biographical psychological sports film with Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo. And it's about the DuPont family heir and wrestling enthusiast, uh, his recruitment of two wrestlers, um, and then the subsequent murder of one of those um, by DuPont. So, yeah, we're going to watch that and talk about it. That's happening. Okay. Yeah, we definitely, that's happening. We're definitely going to need to see that. Okay. Um, the other response I got was from my brother, Ross. A series. He had some, some mixed feelings. It started with this. So cute. You thought there were 80 types of bear. <laughs> Meaning like, oh, you're a sweet kid. That's so uh -oh. stupid. Did anyone think there were less than 80 types of bears? I was shocked that there were, what did we figure out? There were eight or some classification? Eight. Yeah. Like eight categories then with different subspecies. So yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't think that that, I, I didn't find that to be an embarrassing error at all. I'm still shocked. Quick context. Is Ross younger brother, older brother? No. Younger okay. brother. Younger yes. brother. Ross has something to prove. I'm just saying as a younger, I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> Ross, okay. I'm one of you. Uh, I'm a younger. <laughs> Um, so that's point, that's point one, but then just wait before oh. you defend him. Oh, wait. No. Ross, no, don't betray me. Wait. <laughs> Unbelievably disappointed in you and Tegan for picking pandas as the best bears. Why? I was like, well, first of all, I didn't even pick panda as the best bear. And then he said to me specifically, you revised to polar bear, black bear, and brown bear. So basically, you've listed them all. <laughs> and grizzlies are inland brown bears. <laughs> <laughs> How um, does he know that? Is that just a thing that 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 guys know about, like the Roman Empire? Or is that what's is the Roman Empire? Or is he is he a bearologist? No, I think he's just got a solid foundation of bear knowledge. <laughs> I love how you you suddenly started to defend your brother a little bit. You could hear it come out. You're like, well, no, there's nothing weird about it. <laughs> hey, I'm not I'm not attacking him. Yeah, but... I should forget though that he was incredibly disappointed in our selection of bears and the fact that I ended up selecting all of them. This is just not good for me to hear because the idea that anybody is listening to this and then is deeply disappointed in us is just, you know, it's really actually confirming my narcissistic insecurity all the time. Everybody's a little mad at me. <laughs> but wait, hold on. Did he clarify what his favorite bear is? No. Okay. Well, all right. Ross. That's a good question. Okay, yep. So follow up. What kind of bear? All right. If you're going to act so disappointed about it, what kind of bear is best? 
Yeah, and and we need a rationale. So please, yeah, make it a, present an argument to us. Yeah, and we will read it on the pod. Yeah, well, I gotta say, I feel like between last episode and this one, I think we're really honoring Dwight by taking bears seriously. Even though it was Jim's kind, Jim's question, Dwight is the one who really does have an investment in bears. Did we ever like bring up the cartoon bear question? Like, did we talk about say like a Winnie the Pooh or a? a oh yeah. You picked Oh yeah, okay. Because I'm disappointed in that. Well, I just thought that was a real Nerf bear choice. Yeah, I am not thrilled with Nerf becoming a regular part of the podcast idiom, but it sure has. Uh, I forgot to use that outside of the context of making fun of you, so I, <laughs> to, uh, I need to bring it outward. And um, I, <laughs> I'm trying to think of other cartoon bears that are, you know, iconic. And great. There's, I can't think of any other cartoon bears. Oh, what about Baloo from uh, Jungle Book? Ass. Ass. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Nothing Not for Baloo. <laughs> Not interested. But I will say I just Googled and uh, there's a Wikipedia page called List of Fictional Bears. <laughs> so, um, you know. Fictional bears. Like, are there any literary bears? uh well the jungle book i guess would technically yeah yeah i guess that's right yeah um but i don't know that's a good, automatically go to disney when i think of that you know berenstain bears i guess anyway oh a... yeah you know the whole scandal about berenstain slash berenstain bears right yeah isn't it this like did we all thought it was up... what did you say didn't you grow up always thinking they were the berenstain bears yes and it's actually spelled Berenstain Bears. That's insane and cannot be true. There's like a conspiracy theory about it that it has to have been spelled Berenstain in the past and then they've like changed it. How was everyone wrong about that? Because everyone read it wrong. Can I just say, we're never getting to this episode, A. And B, I, you know, in my younger days, I really liked a conspiracy theory. They were real fun until it became all about, you know, like, racism and uh and so conspiracy theories now i'm kind of like whatever but it's nice once in a while to just have a good old apolitical inoffensive conspiracy theory and i sure hope the berenstein bears one is that because i'm about to say i really like (laughs) i like that conspiracy theory uh and and i i I don't want to endorse it until i do a quick google and make sure it's not anti-semitic or anything at all but right. but that feels plausible to me that there's some rift in the space-time continuum that yeah. is uh, mixing up this Berenstein. I agree. I think that this is a, uh, yeah, as far as we know, this feels like a fun and lighthearted conspiracy theory, and we do need more of those. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Okay. Well, shall we move on into the episode before yeah, we just... spin off into an hour of bear content? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We almost turned this podcast into an office supplies one. Now we're bear centric, but I'll just say we don't have anything uh, at the receptionist desk. Um, so, uh, but if you want to write into us, it's the best office hours podcast at gmail.com. And we will happily read your message on the podcast if you want. Uh, so yeah, let's dive in. All right. So as I said, season three, episode 22, women's appreciation. And here's our summary from NBC. 
Michael gets an earful from the women in the office after Phyllis gets flashed. Pam helps Dwight hunt for the culprit. Initial reflections. A plus classic episode. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think this is, I say it a lot, but this is top tier office for me. Uh, yeah, you actually do say that a lot, as it's turned out. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> it's as a person who's not a fan. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, as I said at the at the upfront, you know, it just has a lot of the things that I like. Like there's an ensemble, we leave the office, uh, mm -hmm. and and then things that I don't like, the cringe. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll just say right now, like top cringe for me, Michael putting his finger through his pants <laughs> is it just <laughs> iconic cringe. Okay, I actually love that scene. <laughs> what okay we'll let's get go, it we'll, okay let's um, go right to that right to that okay all right sure okay well so the context phyllis walks in she clearly looks unsettled she says i think i just got flashed dwight springs into action runs out to try to catch the guy pam goes to comfort phyllis jim calls the real police in response to dwight acting like the police um and when michael comes in well, before we get to the finger through his pants, when Michael comes in, his initial reaction when um, they tell him that Phyllis was just splashed, his initial reaction is, really, is she okay? And I felt like he had a an actual thoughtful response at first, but then he kind of like breathes out and he goes, Phyllis, you say? Um, I mean, did he even see Pam? or Karen from behind. And then he just thinks that it's hilarious. And so he, he kind of turns around and he unzips the fly of his pants and he sticks his finger through it and then like turns around and goes like, Wah. you know, shows it to the office. I think that this is really funny. Why? Say more, go on. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's so weird <laughs> I think it's I got nothing to say about it but I think it's funny I just I never thought of doing this move but it really does achieve something when it's your finger coming through your pants it does look like skin <laughs> just, I don't know it's funny but especially then when um Toby walks in and he is um, facing Toby comes and talks to him. And Toby's saying, you know, I don't think laughing is really appropriate. I don't think the women in the office would appreciate it. Michael says, incidentally, what are you, uh, where were you during all of this? Maybe you're the flasher. And Toby says, I was at a uh, parent-teacher conference. Um, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I've gotten off track. This, is, this comes before the conversation with Toby when Toby walks up and Michael has his finger out of his pants and then he just like, Let's it go down in front of Toby. It's so weird, but it's, it's just very funny. I don't know why this this uh is this very immature that I think this is so funny. No, I mean yes and no. I I don't know. I, I look. I'm not here to judge. Uh, but um, but it is. So you've never seen anybody do this in real life. No. Do people do this in real life? I thought Michael came up with this. 
What? No, no, no. People do this. People have done this. Or at least my experience of elementary school was like little boys doing this or whatever. Sounds weird to say out loud, but I just mean that like this young kid kind of. It would be a kid thing and not an adult man in the workplace thing. Um, But wow. See, I've never. Maybe that's part of what made it so funny to me. I've never seen that. I was totally unfamiliar with that move until I saw this. Well, how did it go when you tried it with your students? (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely done it to Dan. (laughs) (laughs) And what was his reaction? I don't know. Probably just thinks I'm an idiot. But I do, I think it's funny. I see, I had taken it to be like a creative dick joke. Turns out it's just like super familiar and put into an inappropriate context. Um, but I, I appreciated it. But this made you feel really uncomfortable. In that. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not that, um, I guess what, what I, it, the cringiness of it to me mm-hmm. is exactly as you narrated it. Like nobody is laughing. And it's yeah. kind of interesting. Like, as you said, he, actually has an appropriate initial reaction that it really sets up the scene so beautifully when he's like really is she okay um and then when he hears that she is okay then he kicks into his like jokes about phyllis um and so i i don't and i don't know i I would love your thoughts on his psychological like what is the psychology behind that move but Mm. um but just as it continues to go on he's like almost egging himself on because he's like can't be wrong or something i don't know he just keeps he's it's pretty funny when you think about it jim says not really no and pam says it's disgusting and demeaning and so then he like then he has to show no it actually could be funny um and doesn't he say have you ever been to the circus and it's like right but you're not at the circus (laughs) nor was phyllis anyway so it just what makes it so cringe for me is the level of inappropriateness and his commitment to the bit like no I have to prove to you how funny it is regardless of context yeah yeah he seems I love in the scene the way that he's covering his face too, covering his mouth like he looks like he is really finding it so funny and kind of can't contain it um and the line uh well I I I shouldn't have laughed at this but I sure did uh, when he says, I mean, did he even see Pam or uh, Karen from behind? And <laughs> says, I'm guessing not. And yes. just like, not. I don't know. Just anyway, it's very funny. His misrecognition. And then also this does go to the point, you know, like Pam is stressing, like it's disgusting and it's demeaning. And that is the point of it, right? It is meant to demean you. It's meant to, it's a power move it's not a sexual move per se like or it might be a sexual move fetish or something for the exhibitionist we don't know in this context but in any case it's certainly not about the uh person that's it's not about the attractiveness or not or whatever of the person that's looking and that's what michael's focusing on and in the meantime then just humiliating and judging their appearance and anyway so the whole episode growing around that kind of like his not understanding that he is a misogynist and a sexist is uh, so funny would okay so you said that point that it is 
to be disgusting and demeaning and that it is a power move. Would actually a power move response, and I mean, not that in the situation you have that level of um, kind of planning, right? Like it also takes you completely by surprise and all of that. So not that you can strategize in this way, but is Michael's response of laughing at it and making a joke out of it, like, is there actually a potential taking back of power in that? That's interesting. Uh... Like, not that it should be coming from Michael or that it should be coming in this way, but it's an interesting way to process it, like to make fun of it rather than um, focusing on the kind of demeaning and disgusting aspect. Yeah, and that's something I'm going to be interested to talk about is kind of the assumption that, and it... <sighs> It plays in like Dwight. I actually think this is kind of a brilliant plot move, but Dwight basically takes this um, event and initially, mm -hmm. much like Michael, seems genuinely concerned. He runs mm -hmm. out, he's trying to get the guy or whatever. And then suddenly, kind of, we might even say like weaponizes it to implement mm -hmm. a whole series of kind of draconian, yeah. um, sexist rules for women. But in his logic, they're sort of all about diminishing women's sexual sexuality or whatever to in the workplace or something like that. They need to cover up. We need to get rid of bananas. So nobody's thinking about penises, all this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And so it all hangs on the sort of assumption that women are like fragile and need protection from uh, threatening forces of male sexuality. And so yeah, the idea of laughing at it or uh, you know whatever would certainly like undermine that possibility. Of course, if Phyllis were to do that, then she might also be subject to like actual physical violence. I can imagine that equally being a response. But but it's interesting the way the episode sets it up that like what is what is upsetting to her is not what like Dwight and Michael think is upsetting. Hmm. or I don't know that was kind of my reading but I'm curious what you think yeah that I really really like that point about Dwight's reaction and the way that that idea of the vulnerability of women and protecting women from men becomes the way for men to assert control over women as we see Dwight doing um the other take we have on it is Creed yes who Creed is like the guy was just ha hanging brain. If that's flashing, then lock me up. And he comes back again a little later and he says something like, again, I say, what is the issue here? I can't, that's not ex the exact line, but Creed is the other guy with a real different interpretation of this thing. Um, Yeah, so I was frantically trying to see if I could find the origins of hanging brain as a idiom like what is it where does it come from or whatever you're trying frantically to find yeah. that <laughs> and i really want to like i'm gonna see if i can do more research into this like i'll look in the oxford english dictionary or maybe nice. but you know the best that we've got is urban dictionary and so urban dictionary says hanging brain is the act of pulling one's scrotum testicles included through the opening in one's pants or shorts thus exposing the beauty of one's gonads for all to admire. 
named for the remarkable resemblance of the display to a human brain hanging in the breeze. Um, so uh, <laughs> that was posted by somebody on November 5th, 2003. Vivid. Yeah, really vivid. And I was like, wait a minute. Is that what? So she says, um, I was walking to the building and this man asked me for directions and he was holding a map. And when I walked over, he had it out on the map. So I took that to mean his penis. And so does Dwight. But Urban Dictionary would make us think it means his scrotal, you know, scrotum and testicles, basically. So what was your interpretation? <laughs> Same as yours. Same <laughs> as yours. <laughs> So Creed is really expanding the, um, I don't know, the specific versions of this. We were talking a little bit about Michael's reaction to it. And I wanted to come back to that because first he has the really, is she okay? Then he has the, she, he thinks that it's hilarious, but then he turns, like you said, you know, um, Dwight is really all about protecting women in the office. Michael also turns to being all about protecting the women in the office, but in a different style than Dwight. And I think it comes right after he has that phone call with Jan. Um, or is it right before? Maybe it's right before. So I was interested in this, the relationship between the flashing situation and Michael's relationship with Jan. Oh, brilliant. So, he explains in one of the little interviews, in all the excitement, I forgot that my primary goal is to keep people safe. Women can't have fun if they don't feel safe. For example, Jan and I have a safe word in case things go too far, foliage. And if one of us says that word, the other one has to stop. Although last time she pretended she didn't hear me. So I felt like there was this interesting connection between that issue of safety and him feeling safety with Jan and feeling lack of safety with Jan. And then it, it feels like there's this moment when it switches for him and when the flashing thing stops being funny and he starts then taking it seriously again. But it seems like the way he gets to the seriousness is partly by relating to it. That is brilliant. I had not tracked I just hadn't pieced that together. I was so focused on trying to draw a connection between the cold open and the rest of the episode, which we will come back to later. Mm -hmm. I had not thought about these, how these two parallel plots like link up. That is, I'm just like blown away. Uh, and I think you're totally right. It's also, it's so interesting in that phrasing. Um, first, he says that my primary goal is to keep people safe. Women can't have fun if they don't feel safe. So first, he's... Yet again, making it as if the primary goal of work is for fun and rather than like work, uh, <laughs> very characteristically, Michael. And then the it second really thing is, is because it could be they can't be productive if they don't feel safe. Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, we can't focus or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then the other thing is, arguably, to go to the Michael Scott trans reading, he's he is the woman in the sentence that says women can't have fun if they don't feel safe because he is the one who wants and needs the safe word um which she doesn't listen to and then later when he says that he's happy with her sometimes like when sex is ending or almost over or something like that or if, when they scrapbook 
they scrapbook. He wants cuddling and snuggling, which obviously don't have to be gendered, but you know, uh, are sort of coded as gendered. So yeah. I don't know. I was thinking about that uh, there. Well, you know how I loved some good textual evidence, and you really brought my attention to how close those things are put together in that quote. So women can't have fun if they don't feel safe. For example, Jan and I have a safe. Mm. But so like you're saying the way that it's put together, because the example is that he and Jan have the safe word, but he is the vulnerable one in the example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who can't have fun if he doesn't feel safe. And he doesn't feel safe. And it goes right from there to the phone call with Jan. And Jan um, calls and she's saying, come over after work tonight, okay? I miss your body. And Michael says, I don't know. I feel, I drive a lot. I'm spending a fortune on gas and tolls. I'll give you $200. And if I get up before you, I'll leave it on the dresser. Um, That, I don't know. That makes me kind of uncomfortable. 300? I, uh, well, I don't know. You know, whatever. Just let my assistant know if you're coming over so he can get more vodka. Okay, Hunter, are you on? And then Hunter is on the phone and he says, you got it, Jan. So many bad boundaries. No wonder Jan's with Michael. <laughs> so many. I think this really connects to the thing that you're saying and that we've talked about as the feminization of Michael and the way that Michael gets kind of put into this position that is coded as feminine or as associated with women and here I feel like Jan is this expression of like corporate male power yes. where your secretary is there on the phone your hot young secretary is there on the phone and kind of you know navigates or arranges your sexual escapades for you the coming over having him him come over having him be the one who drives and he has to be the one who kind of puts in the effort for her schedule the focusing on his body and wanting that the leaving the money on the dresser um and poor michael here i really feel for him i love your point that it's kind of like because i do think I don't know, people often say like, and in, I feel like some of the writers of the show said, that, oh, we couldn't make this show now or whatever. And it just feels like their excuse to be like, oh, everybody's too sensitive or something like that. But I also think that like the culture has changed, not necessarily in terms of whatever sensitivity or something, but um, part of what made this funny at the time is that like, to a degree, Michael's supposed to be a kind of dinosaur or like what we want him to be in that like, he is he's meant to represent like what's whatever bad about certain forms of masculinity by his idealizing them but then also falling short of them or that's been my argument and so he's um like put in a position that like women are often put in and mm -hmm. or in or have often been put in and like we don't ever really see the reversal situation we don't see like the, the corporate woman, yeah, doing this kind of thing. And so it's interesting because it's like what we can take as a queer trans reading of Michael, it also just comes out of the gender reversal um, mm. at the core of it. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, so it makes me wonder now, like if we, I don't know, not that this joke wouldn't play the same now, but I do feel like you'd you'd want to tweak it or do something, I don't know. I mean, it's still funny. That's not the point that I'm making. It's just like, 
I feel like what they were trying to do was like do a reversal. And so I'm wondering how it would play now. Cause I can imagine basically like, I'm, I'm picturing my students seeing this and being like, wow, that's like, that's really problematic and whatever. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Like that's the point of yeah. it. I don't know. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm, I think I'm muddling my point, but. But is it, cause I guess like, is it, is it problematic to show the problematic? Right. But also is that like, yeah is it is it just a gender reversal uh or is it doing something is there something else going on there too and I, anyway so i love your point about the kind of corporate power structure of it like it's so interesting too that she then shows up at the end um yeah. to apologize for this um yeah. which is not something that we would see perhaps in a male corporate boss figure i don't think yeah 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 that's true that was a pretty big move of apology there. I think I do have kind of a theory connecting this to the the corporate power and some thinking about what's going on with Jan here. And it relates to when um, <laughs> Dwight says, wait, all right, I got to call up. I got to call up this quote. Uh, where did it go? It is the I took. Here's the problem with this episode. I copied down too many notes and <laughs> then some hard to find but here it is this is when dwight is making his big announcement about his task force that he is rolling out so he says due to a recent incident involving phyllis a man a map and his penis i think you know what i'm referring to michael has authorized me to form an emergency anti-flashing task force and then Jim raises his hand and he says, question, won't that interfere with your other task forces? Dwight, answer, no, because this will be given priority one. This is a petition for the business park to upgrade their security cameras, as well as install two floodlights in the parking lot. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Won't that just shed more light on the penises? <laughs> but that is the risk we have to take. Pam, you can draw, kind of. Why don't you work with Phallus on drawing a picture of the exposer so that I can post it around the community? And then Pam asks, Phallus? Dwight says, Phyllis, sorry, I've got penises on the brain. Back to work, everybody. <laughs> I've been dying for us to make the Phallus-Phyllis joke. It's just so good. It's so good. I love it that Dwight, in following up, he doesn't get really embarrassed about it or something. He no. just it's on the brain <laughs> like this makes this makes a lot of sense as a slip up but the way that i think it connects to a theory of jan is the idea of the phallus and of like a phallic way of thinking about power kind of male-centric power which is something that is being exerted by the man the map and his penis but then for jan working in upper level corporate management a very male dominated field it puts her in a weird position in terms of power and it makes me think about what's happening with the way that she puts michael into this kind of feminized or woman coded position and it being itself a kind of exertion of what we might say is a phallic kind of power like yeah. a way of taking a sort of masculine associated power in her personal relationship when sure there's vulnerability and there's difficulty in her position as a woman in corporate. Mm. 
No, I love that. I think that that's right. And I think that the the episode is playing with that a little bit, at least when Michael is like, we have to go to a, this is a masculine space. We have to go to a feminine space. And the space that he thinks of is the mall, which we will absolutely talk about. But but it does sort of emphasize like the office is a phallic space. Um, Yeah, yeah. And I do think that's kind of what is interesting about Creed. You know, like Creed is voicing the kind of like, what's the big deal, you know, uh, of it all. And and I have to imagine like lots of people or lots of men in particular would have that kind of attitude, you know, and um, and so it's it's kind of interesting the ways in which the episode is like recognizing that and 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 criticizing that kind of like i don't know phallic dominated space and then different one version of it is a kind of like ends up policing women and then the other one is basically like um you know let men have free reign and no consequences uh like two creed and dwight are like on the opposite sides of their approach to power but they're still within this like phallic economy Ooh, yeah yeah i like that the other example of this that would take us to the mall, although it's on the jam thing that we have to talk about, and that is the part when Michael asks the ladies. So they've gone to the Steamtown Mall and they're sitting around the table in the food court and talking. He says, let's dish. There are a lot of things to talk about here, but one of them, just the one in particular that's related to Jan and the sort of masculine power is when he, he talks about the... Um, the question of role play. And he asks, um, let's see, what do you guys, what do you think of role play? Phil says, it can be fun. Michael, yeah, well, Jan has the schoolgirl fantasy. I just, I feel uncomfortable wearing the dress. Which is, first of all, the schoolgirl fantasy idea. Is the guy in it a teacher? Like, okay. I understand girl is supposed to be a schoolgirl. Uh, I, I, that's a really interesting question. I don't know. I feel like when I think of like porn that uses that setup, it would be like teacher, student, schoolgirl, you know, whatever, I guess. But when I, but in the way that he's describing it, if it's like a sexual role play in the bedroom, I don't know if it would, nece- but I guess like, I, I have no idea. Uh, it just, it seems like in the way that he puts it, like there's one person, it's not like everyone's a schoolgirl in this scenario. Right. Oh, no, for sure. She's but not a schoolgirl. It's not like I wear a dress. It's I wear the dress. And which is both funny, you know, like, and is the joke there, but it's also just really fits into this pattern of that kind of feminine positioning of Michael and of Jan then asserting a specifically masculine power over him. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I think I misunderstood. I thought, yeah, I don't know whether Jan is a teacher or not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely <laughs> not a schoolgirl. Yeah, for we, sure. We can't Which, uh, We can't go beyond the evidence that we have to draw. Yes, that's all I meant. I was hesitating on that. But I mean, within the pattern of popular fantasy, presumably, yeah. Either way, she's probably a figure of authority, but certainly masculinely coded. Yeah. Well, not necessarily. It could be a... This could be her experimenting with, well, on the other, we don't know. He's wearing the dress. What is she? Does he say schoolgirl fantasy? Is that what he says? 
Yeah, Jam has the schoolgirl fantasy. Well, interesting. Like it is gender play. So what I want to know is like, is she, you know, the headmistress or is she like a a, te- a male teacher? Like if is it a gender reversal role play or is it more about power in which she retains her particular gender identification and uh, requires Michael to give up his or change his or whatever yeah. um, because she understands inferiority to be feminized right? Uh, yeah. Uh, or I don't know. Either way, it, it's just interesting. Um, yeah. A bit of the ambiguity there. But I do, there are a few other things to say about it. Number one, there is something charming about Michael's openness to his sexual partner's desires, mm-hmm. um, his sort of willingness to explore and experiment. And then on the other hand, the humor of it also being like, here's this guy who talks so big about sex or whatever. And then he ends up with these women who are way more sexually um experimental and experienced than he is and he's completely like disinterested in it and out of his depths with it and he just wants to fucking cuddle like it's so goddamn funny uh in that way um and then he like his ex also had this like sort of dominance right didn't he there was that scene when he was laying on the floor and <laughs> after Carol breaks up with him, I think, and he's asking Pam, like, you know, what if somebody asks you to do something in bed you don't want? It's it's something like that when he's laying on the floor and feeling defeated and sad. Yeah, that one. Uh, oh, my God. So then it's interesting. We're supposed to get or so Pam says. You shouldn't do anything you're uncomfortable with. And this is the most insight into Jan I feel like we've gotten. Michael says, Jan says, anything that doesn't scare us is not worth doing. I don't know. Maybe we're different people. I like cuddling and spooning, and she likes videotaping us during sex. (laughs) Pam says, oh, my God. And then Michael says, and then watching it back right afterward to improve my form. And says, that is not healthy behavior. Um. And he says, no, it's not that bad. The worst part is that she shows it to her therapist and they discuss it. Oh, God. <laughs> so there are moments here in the writing, or at least with these characters where I'm like, are like, I kind of like how it unfolds where initially it seems a little kink shamey, but Phyllis is like, oh yeah, role play can be fun. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, schoolgirl fantasy, it's pretty common. Like mm-hmm. nobody's super shamey about it. And so I kind of appreciate that what is unhealthy is that Michael's not comfortable. Like, and it's, it's breaking his boundaries or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, but at the same time, I do feel like there is, I don't know, a bit of a kink, uh, not shaming, but there's a joke about her kinks there at the same time. Are they even kinks? Because she's going to her therapist. Uh, <laughs> So it is, is it really about sex at all for her? And is it more about criticism? Hmm. Ooh, you had a big theory about Jan and criticism. Remember that? I don't. What was, what was my theory? <laughs> it was really good. You got to go back and remember these things. Um, about a big, something, a big part of her character and maybe her identity being in criticizing. Like that being sort of her mode. Oh yeah. Well, that, like part of what she gets out of the relationship with Michael is a person to criticize. Yeah. 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 Well, holy shit. That. 
this would this would support it. Can I ask you a philosophical question you don't have to answer, but do you think people's sexual practices reflect their like or let me let me phrase it more broadly. Like in what way do you think people's sexual like fantasies and practices reflect their uh selves? Like do you see it as kind of somewhat autonomous and separate from who you actually are? Do you see them as like the deepest expression of who you really are? Do you see them somewhere in between? Is it more? Yeah, I don't know. How do you think about? Because I, I I feel like the episode is beck, beckoning us to imagine what she wants in sex is the truth of who she is. Hmm. I have no idea. <laughs> I think I often tend not to think of all kinds of things like this would go for gender performances too. I think I tend not to think of things as being some profound expression of self. I think in this case, I'm kind of interested maybe in the way that it interacts with other aspects of your life and with other roles. So like in a position of power at work and having to have play a certain kind of power role at work publicly every day is there some kind of relationship between that and the way that you play with sexuality and power privately, or I guess semi-privately if it's between her and Michael and the therapist. Um, So I, I guess it's got me kind of thinking about the relationships among those realms in which people move. Oh, I love that. And I go ahead. Sorry. What do you, what do you think? Oh, I don't have one answer. I think about it a lot, though, because I think sometimes it's tempting to to go the kind of ultra Freudian route and see it as like some kind of unconscious expression of your, um, you know, uh, inner unfulfilled needs and conflicts. Um, Mm -hmm. And then other times I feel really strongly that it's important to think about sex as like a space of play and fantasy and experimentation where you can discover new possibilities not even about oneself but just like pleasures or desires or things like that that it it doesn't have to be so tied to your identity or your whatever sense of self um but i really like your point because i'm always just fascinated on a practical question about like do people in sex or in sexual fantasy do they want to extend or deepen certain um, or reframe certain aspects of their life? Or do they want an escape and an almost dissociate or not a dissociation, but like a, a total reversal of them? So like, for example, the corporate CEO who is into BDSM, but wants to be, you know, a sub is a masochist, like the, you know, the boss who wants to give up the power. So it's kind of interesting to me that in Jan's case, like she is a boss and she wants to be more of a boss in, yeah. you know, at a kind of inflation of that or an extension of it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So she's got both the extension of being a boss and the reversal of the feminine to the masculine in right. some way, which partly seems to have to do with being in the position of being boss and like in the hierarchy 
like compared to the people in the office, she's higher up in the hierarchy, but she's also not the most powerful person in the company. And also going all the way back to, um, what was the name of the women in the workplace episode? Um, way back when I can't remember, but back to her seminar (laughs) about the ways that still like being a woman in power, there are all kinds of ways that that power is also constantly undermined. And so it seems like Michael, she also almost has this more stable kind of power. Yeah. A, A power that isn't, you know, for however long one is in a sexual, in this sexual space is uncontested. Yeah. Um, yeah. And un, unquestioned. And it, I mean, it's an interesting thing to imagine that role play with Michael Scott, a person <laughs> who cannot follow any rules, does not listen to what you say. So <laughs> to get like, you know, however many minutes of pure uh, submission from him, I can imagine being not only a relief, but a triumph. Um, (laughs) I guess that's why the word foliage doesn't work. I think a lot about uh, um, how people or how you can like take not traumatic things, but often traumatic things or, or whatever. I don't know how sexuality can be a space to rework things like uh you know um and i don't know so so i like this idea that she's reworking or she's working out something here but what is it that michael wants to work out what does he need what does he desire yeah his desires this uh, one of the questions that i was thinking about is what what do we get and what what do characters get from gender crossings of different kinds. So Michael's very uncomfortable with having to wear the dress and with that kind of gender crossing. But at the same time, the so whole episode seems to be about pretty intense desire for a gender crossing to dish with the girls. Yeah. Like enter a feminized community where on the one hand, it's about women's appreciation and it's about taking women to the mall where they're going to feel more comfortable. But Really, it's very much about him being able to have the conversation with them and kind of have a community of women surrounding him and supporting him. So that feels like a gender crossing for him that is empowering. We also have Pam when she changes the tire and Michael doesn't know how to do it. People immediately ask Michael, you know, does he, when Meredith's, um, the tire on Meredith's van goes flat, does Michael know how to do it? And no, he doesn't. And he kind of like dances around it a little bit and is like, oh, you know, I'll be on traffic duty or something. Um, but Pam does it. And she feels yeah. this sense of elation and pride afterward in being able to do this thing that's supposed to be a man thing. Right. And maybe another thing we can get into is the men spending the day in the women's bathroom. But that's oh, like yes. additional thing. So we, we can save that. But it feels like this episode includes multiple forms of gender crossings and some of them being disempowering and some of them being empowering. Like being feminized is not only disempowering. I think that in some ways right. Michael is empowering when he gets to be with this group. Yeah. I was trying to find the place where he says that, well, he just says, I want to do something nice for you because you did something so nice for me. Yeah. Um, when he decides to buy them Victoria's secret, but I just love what you said. Yeah, like it's not um, 
yeah, he's he's empowered and enabled. And um, I don't know. I was going to not. Yeah, I was going to say nurtured, but that's too both too gendered of a word and too strong of what actually happens. But he's supported and he feels nurtured by it. Yes. Because I think he also doesn't have that. Like, who would be his male friends that he would go to for this? Like Packer? You're not going to have this kind of conversation with Packer. Like the vulnerability, space for the vulnerability and support. And women who also seems to me are trying to help him figure out what he actually wants and what makes him comfortable and what's good for him. So I think even if it's not like a full two-way street or something like that, I think I think the the level of the word nurture feels right for what he experiences. One thing, uh, two quick points I want to make. Number one is that I love your language of gender crossing and it just feels right to me uh that this episode is playing a lot with that and i love that you mentioned the the bathroom scene which also emphasizes this thing that we were talking about earlier about like gendered spaces the office as a masculine space the mall is supposedly a feminized space um but uh oh shit what was i gonna say about it um oh yeah crossing is that I think sometimes like, and I'm going to say this, like as a person who's transitioning, um, like the way that we can talk about gender now as like solidified around identities, mm-hmm. and then like, it's tempting and it's fun for me to be like, oh, okay. Like look at Michael's, you know, like here's a proto trans reading of him or whatever. But I also don't want to shut down all the other kinds of fluidity that gender just is because gender isn't real it's not stable it is this social um contradiction and set of you know fluid norms and so it's kind of it's just interesting and and useful i think to keep open that idea Mm -hmm. that one might cross in all these kinds of ways and find pleasures and possibilities that doesn't necessarily necessitate anything about one's identity it could but it doesn't have to um Yeah. And the second point I wanted to make more critical of Michael, although I do feel I I want to argue that the episode is kind of aware of this. It's called Women's Appreciation, and it starts out with a woman being violated and sexually harassed. And then it ends up being all about Michael. And like, of course, you could argue, (laughs) well, every episode of The Office is about that. (laughs) But it just seems like the episode is really thinking about how his needs and his desire, like his problems take over, you know, in the same way that Dwight's um, new policies, which I really want to talk about, kind of take over the off, like basically men dominate even when they're supposedly trying to appreciate and protect women. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Before we get out of the mall <laughs> i just want to briefly talk about the pros and cons list <laughs> i don't know that i've got much to say mostly want to read into the record so <laughs> as they're trying to figure this out and figure out what michael wants they do a pro con list and pam tells michael read the read the pros first michael okay jan is smart uh successful good clothes hot perfect skin, nice butt. <laughs> Phyllis says she does have very nice clothes. Um, so just the kinds of things that Michael says. 
I think there's a way in his pro cons list too, where he is maintaining the image of a very of a surface level masculinity like yeah. a Todd Packer for what yeah. would be good things or bad things in a woman. Because with his cons too, like there's this mix though. So cons wears too much makeup, breasts, not anything to write home about, insecure about body. I'm unhappy when I'm with her, flat chested. Pam then asks, what was the last one? And he says, she's totally flat, shrunken chesticles. First of all, my sister says that word, chesticles. It disgusts me so deeply, like viscerally. I did not remember that this is where she had gotten it, that this was her <laughs> Um, but <laughs> Michael in this sort of what I, what I read to be a sort of self-protective move, rather than going back and saying the thing that Pam is obviously asking about, and that's right. the, I'm unhappy when I'm with her, right. he goes, totally flat chested. It's like, Michael, I'm not convinced that that is even a thing that you really care about here. <laughs> that's so great. And it's, it's one, it's the kind of structure of a joke I often love where it's mm -hmm. like a thrown off thing that the character doesn't realize that they've said yeah <laughs> um which happens even later when he says i'm happy sometimes when we scrapbook or right towards the end of having sex like he doesn't realize what he's really saying but we have to catch it um <laughs> but also the joke about insecure about body like no wonder she's insecure about her body like given the entire list of things he's just said about it um or you know his criticism of her but yeah. i mean every single item is about her body or the things that kind of go on top of it <laughs> so, like so success i mean i guess smart that's that's the one thing that's about her mind successful so that's like a status thing but then the rest of them are like clothes hot skin butt flat chested makeup all of that stuff, but then this one really core item, I'm unhappy when I'm with her. <laughs> now, what did you make of his desire to um, like reward them all with Victoria's Secret? Is <laughs> that a good was that a good gift choice on his part? It's so weird. Just was thinking about when he is sitting next to Angela um, and they're sitting in front of like, there's a couple of the mannequins that are behind them. And there's this big row of colorful underwear that's in front of them. And he's kind of listing for her all of the things that he would like to buy her. And it is such an, such an awkward, incredible, um, like, how with your boss have you ended up in Victoria's Secret? It's it's tough. I feel like all of the things that he tries to do, like how do you how do you appreciate women without it being like just flattening or stereotyping or pandering in some weird way? Right, right. And Victoria's Secret is the extreme end of this, but it doesn't seem like there's a, I don't know, I struggle. Like, is there an, another easy answer or like another way almost to do this? I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. To I mean, I, recommend this. I, I would not recommend this for any bosses. <laughs> <out there. laughs> 
I just also, well, so one, you know, thing in the background of this episode is the uh, Karen versus Pam mm-hmm. that gets played out later. Well, early on when it's like uh, all the times that Michael keeps sort of fetishizing Pam and compare, and then also, you know, fetishizing Karen to a degree, to a different degree. And then at the table, they have different takes, right? Pam, yeah. sometimes you got to push through, or I mean, Karen says push through. Pam's like, you're just not right for each other. And then here, her watching on with the um, Karen is going to buy this, this sexy underwear, I guess, for Jim. And Pam's yeah. like, I'm between boyfriends, so I'm just going to get this robe and cut it up or whatever. And I don't, so I appreciated how the episode was kind of peppering that plot in in these really subtle back. Like, I like when it's backgrounded. Yeah, yeah. Using it uh to these different ends um anyway that's it's just a minor point but i appreciated that one thing that just made me think of is the range i think you mentioned early on the ensemble and having a lot of the cast here and part of maybe the difficult thing of doing a women's appreciation is that we see how very different women are like i think it makes us ask well what even is a woman's face or what even would be a woman thing because when he mentions the mall kelly is gleeful she's thrilled karen is like well it's kind of insulting but i do have a bunch of stuff to return in my car so i'll do it there's meredith with her van there's pam like they're all just also so different and i think that we see that here even as they, oh, Angela, oh my gosh, we're gonna have to talk some about Angela. Um, but the other thing that you made me think of is something that has just left my mind. I'll see if it comes back. You just made me think of another cringe, but well, so, you know, one cringe moment is Michael listing all the possible uh, underpants that he might buy or underwear yeah. he might buy for, <laughs> uh, and different types of bras. It's just really, anyway. Um, <laughs> That was making me cringe. And then the other cringe was uh, Meredith um, parking was just brutal, brutal. So yeah, she gets, (laughs) she hits the back as she's trying to get into the spot of another car. Then as she pulls out and she's like, this one's a little tight. I'm going to go find another one. Not acknowledging that she has hit this car is so funny. But then Michael's follow-up when he says, many women are competent drivers. Yeah. <laughs> many. <laughs> um, I have a few uh, random questions for you throughout the pod. Um, one of them is how you feel about malls. What's your mall experience? Hmm. Um, I feel like for me, I kind of have probably the typical mall experience which was going there as a teenager and like being dropped off by my parents because I almost feel like this thing of sitting in to quote Michael dishing at the food court is a teenage girl thing more than an adult woman thing anyway yeah oh that's true um or I, I don't know I don't know but it seems true but I I'll say I I kind of part of me enjoys a good mall enough that I feel a little bit sad if it seems like malls are dying. They sure do seem like they're dying, don't they? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a, kind of a nice place for teenagers to go. I do (laughs) think about that. 
sorry, go ahead. I just, I feel like I had positive experiences. Did you, you just go when you, it's not even really about shopping, you know, you kind of like go eat a baked potato at the food court and like wander around, look at Hot Topic. What baked potato are you ordering? Are we talking like a Wendy's baked potato? <laughs> no, at the, the, the mall I went to growing up, there was this place in the food court that just exclusively sold baked potatoes. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you could get them with all different kinds of toppings, but I just got mine with butter. <laughs> oh my God. So Dwight, actually, that feels like. <laughs> Holy crap. You've never seen one of these baked potato places? Is this a no, thing? I've never heard. I'm 40 years old and I'm just hearing of this now. And A, I can't wait to tell Jen, who is a potato connoisseur and is going to want to go to this mall or whatever. <laughs> but B, also just the image of you as this, like, I'm picturing you kind of a little punk goth emo <laughs> Megan with your, like, hot baked potato and butter. Uh, now, would you, like, sort of sit down and butter it? Like, would you cut the potato open and sort of butter it in? Tegan, no, this is a full service establishment. They put the butter on for you. Okay, wait, so, okay, okay, I have so many questions. What this is build your own baked potato. What are this you getting? Okay, what, what's being handed to you? A large baked potato. Okay. With Cut. butter in it. Okay. Salt. And then you are, like, kind of scooping out? Scooping out, yep, with a fork. Okay, and are you putting that on a plate, or are you holding that in your hand and, like, walking around the mall? Oh, that's a great question. I think it was in a little dish kind of thing. Like, um, kind of like, you know, uh, like a little boat. Not a boat, but what is it that a hot dog comes in? Like a hot dog container. This is amazing. Oh, my God. What was the name of this place? I do not remember, but I will, on. I will do some research. Okay, 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 okay. Um. And would you go to the mall like every weekend, like every Friday or something like that? I don't think so. No, not every weekend, but sometimes. I do agree. I, I feel sometimes, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be a teenager, but uh, I don't know. I hear they play a lot of like video games. <laughs> They're on uh, Twitch. And oh, you, mean, uh, you don't know what it's like to be a teenager today? Yeah, today. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know what it's like to be one back in, you know, the 90s, but I just, or in the early 2000s, but um, but I often think about, you know, and, and even in the place where I live, like everything closes super early that would be, like there's no like coffee shop that's open till like 11 even, mm. um, you know, so there's no sort of place that like teenagers can go that's open late that doesn't serve alcohol. And mm. like, the mall was a place like that, you yeah. know. To a degree, the movie theater, that was a big one for me as a teenager. Yeah. Like, go to the movies. We wouldn't necessarily even watch the movie, but we would just like hang out outside the movie theater. It was very weird. And then, <laughs> um, you know, like coffee shops. Uh, and anyway, so I, and, 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 yeah, anyway. Uh, but before we leave that topic of the mall, uh, I did want to circle back to Michael's sexuality and go back to a longstanding thread I keep pulling at. Um, okay. And I have, I have textual evidence for you um, because I know, I know that you like that. I don't want to get an A minus. I want an A. So, <laughs> but you might argue this is a stretch. So um, I'm, I'm hearing a B plus coming out of you. Oof. Ouch. 
B plus is a very good grade, to be clear. You know, I, I don't want to reveal too much about myself, but I never mind. I <laughs> <laughs> never mind. Um, but I agree with you. A B plus is a really good grade. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, no, I'll just say it. Initially, when he was describing Jan's like preferences in sex, I was like, this sounds great to me. And I really was thinking about like, you know, uh, uh, like to get her constructive criticism and to get that level of grading. I just feel like, you know, could be erotic in and of itself. I feel like, a, you know, sometimes I miss being graded. I'll confess, you know. And uh, anyway, but then when I heard she's taking it to the therapist, I was like, I don't know, that's that's a level of something. We're on some other plane now, you know, but I, I just thought. Like taking her grades to the department chair and kind of getting them supervised. Yeah, and no. That's no. where it's too much for you. Yeah, that ruined it. For, it ruined the sexiness of her, uh, of her feedback. But wow. I'm curious. I'm curious what percentage of viewers watched this and thought, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear, I wasn't saying it's a good... Well, not Michael, because he's not comfortable with it, but as... <laughs> Just as a particular sexual practice? I don't know, but I didn't love that Pam says that's not a thing that normal women do or something like that. And I was like, well, what's normal? Anyway, whatever. But um, no, okay, so we had said, what does she want in sex? But I was at, I'm thinking like, okay, what does Michael want? He wants cuddling. He wants scrapbooking. He wants, there was one other thing, spooning. Um, and I know that those are like, on the one hand, kind of traditionally femininely uh, coded, but they're not even sexual. And mm -hmm. especially something like scrapbooking. Now, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Not, not explicitly sexual. Not explicit, not necessarily sex. It's not a sexual scrapbook. Although that sounds interesting to me as well. But. <laughs> Who would scrapbook for you? Who would keep a scrapbook for you, one might wonder. And I would argue a mother, perhaps, a maternal figure. Oh, now, when it's at the, it's within that scene, how does that scene basically end? Um, uh, he's saying, um, uh, Pam says, don't be with somebody, you know, doesn't make you happy. And then Phyllis says, I bet you know, don't think, just answer. What do you want to do about Jan? Michael says, I want to break up with Jan. Wow, I want to break up with Jan. And what does Phyllis respond? My, My mom thought me that. Mm -hmm. And the scene cuts. And I thought it was very interesting that we ended on mom's advice. I love it how you always bring it back to the mom. Am I, is this B plus or A minus? You've got me really intrigued. You've got me really intrigued. <laughs> What you need to do is follow up and help me understand what to make of that textual evidence that you've presented. Can you do that? Look at the time. <laughs> Easier said than done. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I throw out random bullshit and you will respond being like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And you'll connect it in all these ways. And I'll be like, whew, I got away with it. And then other times it's like this. Uh, and um, so good times. <laughs> well, I do. I, I am definitely intrigued. And uh, if you want to put together these mom dots for me a little more, I welcome it. If I'll it emerges. I'll think about it. The final final note I want to make then about the mall is the Angela interview when she says, 
Sometimes the clothes at Gap Kids are just too flashy. So I'm forced to go to the American Girl store and order clothes for large colonial dolls. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to say, but it's perfect, Angela. Okay, just a quick question about that. So is there such a thing as an American Girl store for, like an American Girl doll store? You don't know about this? (laughs) No. What, What is it? Teaching you so many things. Big, do you know so much to learn? You have so much. Welcome to Girl World. You've got a lot to learn. So, do you know about the American Girl dolls? Yes, where they they're like each from a different historical moment or something. Yeah, they might all be colonial. Are there any more recent? I don't know. But anyway, there's at least a lot of like kind of colonial era America, Um, and there are these kind of large dolls, and they have outfits. Like, there's a whole production there's a ton of stuff that you can buy that goes with them so like downtown chicago there's a big american girl doll store and so they've got tons of stuff and people go there i think they go for tea parties like girls bring their dolls or kids bring their dolls and they go and have tea parties with the dolls or something like that and there's clothes and accessories and probably horses that they can ride and stuff like that and I think that they also make person-sized doll outfits you know so you could like match your doll that is that's creepy right that's kind of creepy right perfect for Angela I mean (laughs) the style of the colonial doll that was partly my question is like do they not have other outfit options but of course it fits her perfectly I will say I think I've seen there was an SNL sketch based around the tea party idea at one point and I didn't get the context at all so now now I get it uh yeah it's it's quite a big quite a big ordeal I believe should we talk about the bathroom let's talk about the bathroom so uh uh you know I again I'm still new to to uh, what did you call it girl world um <laughs> so I defer to your uh, expertise, but um, yeah, women's bathrooms, are they the utopia that they seem to be? And for Jim, uh, Kevin, Toby, and Creed? It does turn out to be kind of a utopia. So it starts It starts out with once Michael and all the women are gone, Kevin is kind of eyeing the women's bathroom. And he says to Jim, the a thing about, you know, having a fantasy here's another example of fantasy but having a fantasy of going in to the women's bathroom and jim says something like no i think it's a girl's locker room and usually there are girls in it and kevin's kind of like no he says i'm going in like this is a brave frontier moment and he is amazed they find in it a couple of couches and magazines and um some nice pink tile i believe what do you think do you feel like there is an aura around women's bathrooms uh hmm i don't know i I just think about i don't the only thing i can think about is like uh uh, am i allowed to use one where should i go (laughs) that's all i can think about and in my uh building there's only one gender neutral bathroom and it's right next to the women's bathroom in the basement 
and it used to be a men's bathroom and men primarily still use it but it's like officially gender neutral so anybody can use it but it also locks so if you wanted you could lock it and so there's it's it's the only fucking option and anyway uh sometimes i'm running between classes and like somebody's locked it and i'm like god damn it and so only once have i gone in the women's bathroom right next to it in the basement and i was really scared because i was like um i don't want to freak out you know anybody i don't want anybody to feel unsafe or what you hear all this political discourse about that kind of stuff you know and there's like a language of safety which yeah is and say again sorry which is one of the strands in this episode is the language of safety yeah and i uh you know and i was also thinking about like you know i'm uh you know a teacher whatever um but anyway, so I went in the bathroom and I was just like, wow, this is the same exact fucking bathroom as the mm-hmm. one that's right next to it. And I was just like, the hell, man? Like, what is what is with the the it, 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 like, I don't know. There it, it does feel like there's this aura of like the sacred special place. Yeah. Um, and maybe that is about, you know, how awful it is in a patriarchal society, and there is no space in which men are essentially not allowed except the Mm. bathroom (laughs) and so i don't know maybe that then produces these fantasies that of that safety being manifested not in any actual way but in like atmospheric ways so candles couches images of like comfort or something i don't know yeah what do you think i mean what's your i don't know you've had way more experience with women's bathrooms (laughs) I do have a lot of women's bathroom experience and um, partly for that, I think it doesn't, it doesn't have the aura because it has no mystery. I think occasionally you will get a bathroom where there's a couch, there's like a, an extra sort of landing space and there's a couch in it or something. Um, And that is kind of cool. I mean, I definitely, there's the whole idea about, girls and about women going to the bathroom together you know going in a group and it yeah. is a place you then can kind of talk yeah and be removed so I think there is there is something to that and I just found it really really fascinating to see once the group of men in the office do go in what being in that space sort of does to them like <laughs> this is their gender crossing and they end up sitting in there and Kevin at uh, some point is like, this is so great. We have to do this more often. And it's an interesting thing because they're sitting around, they talk some, but they're also just sort of being there together. Like I think, is is it Toby who's kind of closing his eyes and Kevin's flipping through a magazine and, you know, they're, they're kind of able to do a little bit of their own thing and talk some and also just be there together. Um, but you didn't read the next line, which is my favorite line, perhaps in the entire, ep- not only this episode, but like the entire show that we've seen so far. Um, okay. Kevin says we should do this more of- often to which Toby replies. I think we hang out an appropriate amount of time. <laughs> That's your favorite office line of all time. It is so fucking funny. 
How many times has somebody said to you or have you said to them, like, we have to hang out. Let's do it. We've got to hang out more or whatever. But what you're actually feeling is, yeah, we hang out the appropriate amount of time, right? Like you could never say that. No one could ever say that to you, but it is certainly true. And I just died at that level of like brutal honesty <laughs> on Toby's part. But I see from your face, you're not charmed. <laughs> well, I know you are more receptive to Toby than I am. <laughs> Your preferences mystify me in so many ways. I know. I know. I'm a mystery. <laughs> I mean, Toby's not Toby's not wrong, but I'm I'm fascinated that this stands out to you. Can you illuminate that for me a little bit? Why is it that this stands out to you as like such an amazing line of all the lines that we have? Oh, do you think it should be beer or what is it? Bears, beets, uh, what was the other one? Well, what about Battlestar Galactica? Uh, is it Pap Pap Smear or is it Schmear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, certainly in the top ten. But uh, <laughs> no, I just yeah, it just I laugh out loud. I laughed really hard at that line and his delivery of it. But again, it's the deadpan honesty <laughs> yeah. it is it is um and it's also so funny because kevin is never one really to express that kind of sentiment i think he's enthusiastic he's positive about certain things um you know but not whatever the camaraderie in the office or something and so it's like a gen it's actually kind of a genuine moment of enthusiasm from kevin yeah it that is. toby shits on <laughs> and it's so funny to me because Toby is not a person with any bite to him. He is milk toast incarnate. He is, you know, just so bland and toothless. <laughs> <laughs> and so for him to say this, but he, it doesn't, I don't think he means it as a necessarily to be mean. I, I, th I think he means it as an accurate description of, his feelings <laughs> like he's there and he's also not doing his work and he's there he does feel like there's something about the space that sets up a different kind of relationship because they don't have to work like they could go be in the conference room or they could sit on those chairs that are near reception the reception desk that are just as comfortable that are maybe even more comfortable but it does seem like there's something about being in this different space and in this space that they think of as being for women that, I don't know, somehow enables something a little different for them. Uh, I do think part of it is there, um, there's no uh, desks between them. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, that, I mean, they're very close together. They are, yeah. There's like an intimacy of it. But it's interesting that it's the pooping that makes them go. Like Creed's going to come and. Well, yeah, they should leave. You know, um, yeah, I guess it's just it's just the minute it becomes an actual bathroom. Yes, it, it stops being a social space and it like reverts to a space. Yeah, of kind of... function. yeah. but um, but I was just going to say the other thing that makes me laugh about this line is that. It sounds to me so much, forgive me, but something I feel like you would say 
like I feel like if I said to you, you know what, like, why don't we let's record twice a week? I feel like you would say, I think we record an appropriate amount of time. <laughs> I think we record an appropriate number of weeks. Like, I, what? You think this is a me thing to say? Yeah, I do. And I like I'm saying that I love you, man. And Toby's my like favorite character. So this is an endearment. This is a Okay, I will take that. I will take that. A compliment. One of the things I love about you is you have this kind of like brutal honesty. Like you always say where you're at. I really love that about you. And so anyway, this line makes me think of your vibe. Well, I'm taken aback, but flattered because I do know you have a deep love for Toby and I, I will take that association. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only, it's only in this one moment are you like Toby. Mostly you're like Creed. So no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I texted you when Creed walks in with his Walkman. Uh, I had that same Walkman like when I was in probably junior high or high school or something like that like it looks like it's a cassette yeah it is in, and it's the it, yellow one it's a classic i think that was the sport the yellow was the sport <laughs> yeah yeah i had that even though i was not doing any sports with it <laughs> i don't think they were ever really very effectively built for for sports should we well, talk about the breakup scene oh my gosh i forgot about it yes when they go in, so they're back at the office, when they, when Michael walks in to call Jan, and he says, need my girls with me, and has them come in with him, and he whispers, I love you guys, as he's making the call, oh my gosh, Michael. This man could do no wrong for you. You love him. <laughs> yeah, I am really willing to go to bat for him. He can... <laughs> He can be so horrible and he can really profoundly move me <laughs> in one episode. Uh, I will never understand. Just like you don't understand my Toby love, but yep. it is so sweet. And uh, okay, so I'll just read it in the record. Hey, Jan, it's me, Michael. I'm just calling you to say, and this is a voicemail, by the way. I'm just calling to say that I think we need a little break permanently. And uh, I know everybody says this, but I, I want to remain friends or at least business associates who get along. Oh, just so you know, it's not me. It's you. Okay, buddy. Somebody just walked in. I have to go. Um, so I'll talk to you later. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> uh, it kills me. All right. Break down your feelings and uh, please connect them to the textual details. <laughs> He can't help himself from doing a Seinfeld joke in the midst of his breakup, right? Joke. Isn't the, it's not you, it's me. It's you, it's it's not me, it's you. It's not you, it's me. Isn't that from Seinfeld? Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I mean, I know that it's not you, it's me is like a standard kind of cop-out breakup line, but he says it the wrong way, right? He says it's not me. Does he say it's not me, it's you? Yeah, he flips it. Um but it is from uh, uh, an episode of Seinfeld, um, oh. and I think it's called The Lip Reader. Yes. Um, oh. George's girlfriend breaks up with him, telling him, it's not you, it's me. Um, he's baffled uh, since he claims he came up with the aforementioned line and insists it's him, not her. Oh, God. Uh, so I'm, I'm so disappointed in myself 
for not picking that up. I, I, so I don't know, but I mean, I think he's either. So on the one hand, it, it sort of raises the question, is he making a joke and fumbling that joke within the midst of trying to break up with her? Or is he trying to use that line, but get mm. it wrong? Um, or, or is he ge genuinely saying it's you because he believes that? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, God. But anyway, I, I don't know about you, but I find breakups of any sort incredibly difficult. And so I was cringing already. And then just the way that he says we need a little break permanently. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I could just really, it's just as tough. Um, yeah, I don't know. What did you make of this? Well, <laughs> once she's walking in and so he, and he says, okay, buddy. <laughs> like, because I think he sees her at that point and it felt like he was almost changing his mode to as if he was talking to someone else and not yes. as if he was talking to her, her voicemail, right? And then, so yeah, she comes in and apologizes and it's just one of those very painful gaps in time where it's like I know I have just put this thing out into the world and you do not yet know it and they're like living in these little separate planes until her phone beeps and she goes and listens to the voicemail as she was still sitting on his desk just brutal brutal and then yeah just listening to it oh yeah do you want to talk quickly about the cold open Sure. Unless you've got somewhere else to, you've got another part you want to talk about. Nope. Nope. I, uh, I do not. This is, this might be the first time we've ever saved the beginning for the very end. Well, I just, I had, I was trying to work out an argument about it and I don't, I haven't feel like I've locked it down. So, um, so but, but I'd be curious for your thought. This is my last note, but basically, okay. So the cold open is basically Jim shows up late. Um, and Dwight gives him a demerit um, for tardiness. Um, so Dwight says, you're second in command, but that does not put you above the law. Um, and so then Jim asks what a demerit mean. And he says, you do not want to receive three of those, three demerits, and you'll receive a citation, five citations, and you're looking at a violation, four of those, and you'll receive a verbal warning. Keep it up, and you're looking at a written warning, two of those. That'll land you in a world of hurt in the form of a disciplinary <laughs> review written up by me and place on the desk of my immediate superior, which would be me. That is correct. Um, okay, I want a copy on my desk by the end of the day, or you will receive a full disagulation. What's, what's a dis, what's that? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> um, I like this joke. I like this whole bit. Um, and I was kind of trying to relate it to the rest of the episode. And the one thing I thought about was the reversal of power relationships like it seems like Dwight is trying to assert power, um, but Jim ultimately has it anyway. And so this, no matter how much ch ch chain of bureaucracy he creates, it still comes back to him. Um, and I was trying to link that to what we were saying about Jan and the boss power dynamic or whatever, but I didn't get very far. The other thing that I did think, though, was that it connected to what Dwight later does um, which I found super interesting. And I mentioned it a few times, but the um, uh, when he creates a bunch of new rules 
for uh, the women in the office. So he says, this is in the, the memo. Women will be sent home if they wear makeup or heels exceeding a quarter inch. Females are not allowed to speak to strangers unless given written authorization by Dwight Schrute. Um, he removes all bananas from the kitchen, uh, sleeves down to the wrists, button-up collars, and muted colors. Um, and uh, Michael says, we are not the terrorists. But but what I just think is interesting there in referencing we are not the terrorists is referencing like the creation of the Patriot Act, perhaps, and the ways in which like, you know, this act of terrorism that happens on 9-11 becomes the pretext for the United States to massively expand its bureaucratic surveillance state and to some degree. And so you you find amazing ways to get these like big political arguments. Wow. But like he's using this a genuine violation of Phyllis but as yeah. a pretext to implement his kind of like patriarchal law. Um, yeah. But it is, but by the, but the beginning of the episode also emphasizes how ridiculous that is because his power isn't, it never arrives at any effect. Like Jim exactly. never actually gets punished, but what it does do is create a whole chain of, paperwork and yeah. write-ups and all this kind of stuff um and it has no impact for jim but if but in this case it has direct impacts on the women in the office like policing what they wear and who they can speak to and all that kind of stuff i don't know that was the best i could kind of come up with with the like because i kind of like the idea that the violation gets exploited much in the yeah. way one might argue uh one might say that the uh the terrorist attacks, you know, became exploited for other things. Uh, one might say that, you know, who can, anyway, um, I don't know. What, uh, uh, what, what do you think? That the thing you said about the creating the, the chain of paperwork and creating the system of rules and punishments essentially, but that never, you said it never actually gets to an effect. One of the things that I picture as he says this and let me get back to some of the the details here so if you get three demerits you get a citation and if you get five citations you get a violation four of those goes to a verbal warning so i like to think about this as one of those sort of chain things so like you have to start with three demerits you know they kind of like triangle up to the one citation but to get you have to get five citations. So meaning <laughs> that you have to get 15 demerits. If I'm correctly understanding the system, oh, you shit. Have 15 demerits in order to actually get five citations. That gets you to one violation, but you need four violations to get to a verbal warning, which I think means that you need how many, how many, um, <laughs> see you've already lost it i think i said you need 15 demerits to get there so you need 15 times four you need 60 demerits for it to add up to a verbal warning are you visualizing this with me yep yep picturing it picturing it like works up the chain <laughs> so i wanted to like map out the system it is so complicated and there are so many levels <laughs> 
pyramid scheme of punishment that never actually gets anywhere. <laughs> it's pure, pure Kafka. I love it. <laughs> yeah. The only other thing I thought about it is a, a of a question, like, what do we lay out on the table in some way to show power? So like carrots, penises on maps, cash on the dresser, like Jan. Um, so it feels like this sort of gesture of a thing, like I'm going to put this thing before you and it is going to assert some power. But with Jim, I mean, it is like just this absurd grab for power that fails. <laughs> Brilliant. And I would, I mean, to that's interesting. And it gets contrasted with Michael's. Michael doesn't want to assert power. He wants to appreciate the women and <laughs> he does that by buying them an ill-advised gift but it is intended to be a gift um, yeah which is just interesting that it's not about yeah it's not about power. anyway oh man i'm loving that point i'm gonna think more about that how the ways in which we assert and materialize our assertion of power that's really smart well what do you think is it is it chili's time let's go over to chili's all right i think i'm gonna need you to go first today well, this was a tough one for me. I st I remember it, uh, upon my first watch being like, I have no idea like who I'm going to give it to here. Um, I, I was I'm I don't know. I feel sometimes ambivalent about this character, and I feel ambivalent about my ambivalence uh, <laughs> about this character. But and we should um, we should explore that or whatever. Um, but I I just I I think upon reflection, they really deserve this. It's a it's a win all around. So um, I'm going to give them the, yeah, I don't know, the the um, the illustrator award. And it's going to Pam Beasley um, because on the one in on one plot, like she basically like completely punks Dwight um, in an incredible way and sort of turns his surveillance state against him, literally, um, so that he becomes the object of the of the pursuit. And then um, I loved in the other plot, she is the one who changes the tire and has really good advice for Michael. My ambivalence is like a bit about how sometimes she's positioned as like Michael's maternal figure. And also she's seems sometimes to express like super normative ideas about gender and sexuality. But that said, I thought she crushed it. And I also thought it was just really like she had some really funny lines, like her line about um, uh, Roy, for example, in this episode was pretty great, too. So do you uh, read that? that's me. That's for Pam. Do you, do you want to read Pam's Roy line into the record? We didn't actually touch on that. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Roy. Where is it? Uh, I don't often miss Roy, but I can tell you one thing. I wish someone had flashed me when I was with Roy, because that would have been the ass kicking of the year, especially if it had been Jim. He would not want me to have seen Jim's. Ooh, I am. I am saying a lot of things. <laughs> it's pretty good. I love that line. I feel like I want to use that on the podcast sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I am saying a lot of things. Um <laughs> That actually reminded me of the thing that I thought of and forgot like an hour ago. Um, and that was when you talked about laughing so much at that Toby line. Maybe one thing we should pay attention to is what for each of us is our biggest laugh moment in an episode. Ooh, 
Ooh, yes. Okay. I love this. All right. So we'll do, we'll do that. We'll keep track of that next time, maybe. All right. I'm, I'm sticking with the Dundee that I was thinking about. This is the emotional journey award and it goes to Michael Scott who went on a very complicated emotional journey through this episode, I think. And I would like to just read into the record his final couple of lines. He says, Michael, how can you appreciate women so much, but also dump one of them? You mean, how can I be illogical and flighty and unpredictable and emotional? Well, maybe I learned something from women after all. (laughs) Which just encapsulates so much of Michael, where he is I would argue genuinely wanting to learn something from women at the same time being totally sexist in his description of what women are. Um, God love him. You love that guy. That guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, what's, what's the next episode? Um, I don't have it up. Do you know what it is? Um, On one other, one other note, I was going back, I was watching the Dundies episode recently from uh, season two, episode one. And when um, somebody asks, is it Jim or Pam? I can't remember, but asks um, about giving Dwight a Dundee or what Dundee he's going to get. And he says, I don't know. I hadn't hadn't thought about including him. (laughs) So it made me think, who is it, you know, that I constantly exclude from the Dundies when I so frequently can't past Michael and his greatness. But that's, that's just what we're working with here. I love it. I love that. <laughs> and I think the next episode is Beach Games. Ooh, is that right? That's something sounds- about something about going to the beach. Yeah, Beach Games, twenty third episode of the third season, um, and the fifty first of the series. So this was the fiftieth episode of the whole series. Apparently, does that mean we have done fifty episodes of the podcast? Yes. Oh, we should go back and count. Holy crap! It feels like an anniversary. It does. It does. So we should celebrate. I'm glad we made it. And I look forward to 50 more with you. Yes. I love it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.